0: Today's, uh, the word of the Lord will speak to us beginning in the gospel of Matthew chapter four, verses one through 13. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil And after he had fasted forty days and forty nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city, and he had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will give angels his angels charge concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. Now when he heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he came and settled into Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. We'll turn now to 1 Chronicles chapter 21. Beginning in verse 1 through the end of the chapter. Then Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. So David said to Joab and to the princes of the people Go number Israel from Beersheba even to Dan, and bring me word that I may know their number. And Joab said, May Yahweh add to his people a hundred times as many as they are, but my Lord the king. Are they not all my Lord's servants? Why does my Lord seek this thing? Why should he be a cause of guilt to Israel? Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab. Therefore, Joab departed and went throughout all Israel and came to Jerusalem. And Joab gave the number of the census of all the people to David. And to all Israel were 1,100,000 men who drew the sword. And Judah was 470,000 men who drew the sword. But he did not number Levi and Benjamin among them. For the king's command was abhorrent to Joab. And God was displeased with this thing, and he struck Israel. And David said to God, I have sinned greatly in that I have done this thing, but now please take away the iniquity of thy servant, for I have done very foolishly. And Yahweh spoke to God, or to Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and speak to David, saying, Thus says Yahweh I offer you three things, choose for yourself one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and said to him, "'Thus says Yahweh, "'Take for yourself either three years of famine "'or three months to be swept away before your foes "'while the sword of your enemies overtakes you, "'or else three days of the sword of Yahweh, "'even pestilence in the land, "'and the angel of Yahweh destroying "'throughout all the territory of Israel. "'Now therefore consider what answer "'I shall return to him who sent me.' "'And David said to Gad, "'I am in great distress.' Please let me fall into the hand of Yahweh, for his mercies are very great. But do not let me fall into the hand of man. So Yahweh sent a pestilence on Israel. Seventy thousand men of Israel fell. And God sent an angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. But as he was about to destroy it, Yahweh saw and was sorry over the calamity and said to the destroying angel, It is enough. Now relax your hand. And the angel of Yahweh was standing by the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. Then David lifted up his eyes and saw the angel of Yahweh standing between earth and heaven with his drawn sword in his hand stretched out over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders, covered with sackcloth, fell on their faces. And David said to God, Is it not I who commanded to count the people? Indeed, I am the one who has sinned and done very wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? O Yahweh, my God, please let thy hand be against me and my father's household but not against thy people, that they should be plagued. Then the angel of Yahweh commanded Gad to say to David, that David should go up and build an altar to Yahweh on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. So David went up at the word of Gad, which he spoke in the name of Yahweh. Now Ornan turned back and saw the angel, and his four sons who were with him hid themselves. And Ornan was threshing wheat. And as David came to Ornan, Ornan looked and saw David, And went out from the threshing floor and prostrated himself before David with his face to the ground. Then David said to Ornan, Give me the side of this threshing floor that I may build on it an altar to Yahweh. For the full price you shall give it to me, that the plague may be restrained from the people. And Ornan said to David, Take it for yourself, and let my lord the king do what is good in his sight. See, I will give the oxen for burnt offerings and the threshing sledges for wood and the wheat for the grain offering. I will give it all. But King David said to Ornan, No, but I will surely buy it for the full price, for I will not take what is yours for Yahweh, or a burn off- offer a burnt offering which costs me nothing. So David gave Ornan 600 shekels of gold by weight for the site. Then David built an altar to Yahweh there, and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And he called to Yahweh, and he answered him with fire from heaven on the altar of burnt offering. And Yahweh commanded the angel, and he put his sword back in its sheath. At that time, when David saw that Yahweh had answered him on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, he offered sacrifices there. For the tabernacle of Yahweh, which Moses had made in the wilderness, and the altar of burnt offerings were in the high place of Gibeon at that time. But David could not go before it to inquire of God, for he was terrified by the sword of the angel of Yahweh. Then David said, this is the house of Yahweh, God, and this is the altar of burnt offering for Israel. Now, if you would, please turn to the back of your bulletin. We'll read together as a congregation Psalm 48. Psalm 48. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, his holy mountain. Beautiful in elevation is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. For behold, the kings assembled, they came on together. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded, they were in panic, they took to flight. Trembling took hold of them there, anguish as of a woman in labor. By the east wind, you shattered the ships of Tarshish. As we have heard, So have we seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever, Selah. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments walk about Zion, go around her, number her towers, consider well her ramparts, go through her citadels that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Let's bow together in prayer. Father, we're grateful that you call us into your presence, and we're grateful that Lord's day by Lord's day, you speak to us from your word. Help us hear truth, and we pray that you would take the sharp sword of your word and pierce into our lives and put us back together. And make us like Christ. This we pray. In Christ's glorious name, amen. Amen. When I was in high school, I hated history. And you had to take American history and world history. I hated it. And I went to college, and I didn't have to take any history. Then I went to seminary and I had to take church history. And I loved it. Well, it's not because, you know, because it was church history that I loved it. I loved it because the church history teacher was a great professor. Sometimes we forget that since we've been grafted into the olive tree, that our true history is the history of Israel. So God worked through Israel, and God's work narrowed down to one Israelite, the Lord Jesus Christ. The seed of Adam, the seed of Abraham, the seed of David, and in Christ, We, according to Galatians chapter 3, are the seed of Abraham. You know what that makes you? It makes you an Israelite. Now, there are certainly eschatologies that deny that, but that is an exercise in futility. We are Israelites, biblically speaking, and our history is the history of Israel. The history of Israel, of course, has lots of interesting turns, and it has its high points. It's very important. It's very important points. And one of them, of course, comes at the exodus out of Egypt, crossing the Red Sea, going to Mount Sinai, where Israel is now constituted a nation. They get their law, the Torah, and they get their... Well, shall we call it religion? The tabernacle is built, and this is the place where they're going to be able to meet with God. They sin by uh, failing in faith to go into Kadesh Barnea, and so they wander for another 39 years in the wilderness as God trains them like a father disciplines his son. That's what we're told, and then they cross into Jordan I mean, cross the Jordan and come into the promised land. And this happens in about 1405 B.C. God said to Israel through Moses, when the second law, Deuteronomy, second law was written, it was to prepare them. They were on the border of the river, ready to go into the promised land. When you cross the Jordan and you live in the land which Yahweh your God is giving to you to inherit and he gives you rest from all your enemies around you so that you live in security, then it will come about that then it shall come about that that place in which Yahweh your God shall choose for his name to dwell, there you shall bring all that I commanded you, your ascensions, your Bible says burnt offerings, your peace offerings, your tithes and the contribution of your hand, all your choice votive offerings, which you will vow to Yahweh, and you shall rejoice before Yahweh, your God, you and your sons and your daughters and your male and female servants and the Levite who lives within your gates, since he has no portion or inheritance with you. So in Deuteronomy chapter 12, God says, okay, what's going to happen is you're going to go into that land, and I'm going to bring you rest, and when rest comes, then I'm going to to choose a place for my name to dwell, and at that point in time, you will bring all your offerings to that place, and you will meet with me there, and you will rejoice with me there along with your family they crossed into the promised land in 1405 it was some 400 years later think about that that's a long time 400 years later in our passage the surrounding context in first chronicles That David can say, God has given you rest. And in the Davidic covenant that God made with David, he said, I'm going to give you rest. And we've been looking at the chapters in 1 Chronicles, chapters 18 through 20, that summarize how David achieved that rest and gained all the territories around him. He subdued them. Two different words are used for subdued. One of the words goes back to Genesis chapter one, verse 28. The Lord God blessed them and said, "Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it." And so David could say, "The Lord God has given you rest and He has subdued all your enemies." That was 400 years after they entered the land. That's where our passage picks up. And where we go from here in Chronicles is to think about God's name being placed in Jerusalem and the years that it will take to build this temple and God will come and live in it. That's what our passage has to do with and how we get there is quite strange. If your Bible's not open, open it to 1 Chronicles chapter. 21, and because of our limited time, we won't read all the passages, but in First Chronicles 21, uh, <clears throat> we uh, see just an interesting statement. It says, then Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to, the word is, muster Israel. So mustering Israel goes back to the law in Exodus chapter 30, verses 11 through 16. You can write that down and you can go read it. Your Bible will not use the word muster. You will use the word number as if you're just counting them up. Well, counting may be part of it, but that's not the point of mustering. The point of mustering is to draw out the fighting men who work with a sword and to take them out to battle. But before they go to battle, they all have to pass by uh, a, 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 well, a bucket or something and drop in a half shekel. And the half shekel is a covering for them because what they're going out to do is kill. And life is precious. And even when you kill in holy war as they were killing, you have to have a covering to keep you alive because you've taken a life. And that covering is your half shekel. Now, David numbers the people. 2 Samuel chapter 24 tells us that, again, God was angry with Israel, and he moved David to number the people. So we have to keep in our minds that what is happening in 1 Chronicles 21 is God's taking action, and he's taking action, because he's angry with his people. And what he does is what God does with Job. He allows Satan to go to work. But here in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, verse 1, it says, Then Satan stood up against Israel. And of course, Satan is against Israel. But you have these limited numbers of uses of the word Satan in the Old Testament. And the word actually means adversary. And obviously the devil is our adversary. He's opposed to us. And he's trying to trip us up all the time through all of his henchmen. But in this case, the word Satan has no article. So it's probably not the Satan like as in the book of Job or as in Zechariah chapter 3. But instead, it's a Satan and I don't mean by that a demon, but certainly demonic work would be behind this, but instead it's an adversary of Israel, and because we've been in this wider context of battle, it probably is a reference to the fact that that God's been angry with Israel. He's given them rest on every side, but something's going on. He's angry. We're not told what it is, but now he brings an adversary to come up against Israel. It's probably an army. So David is mustering the troops. Now, David is doing something wrong. It's not wrong to muster troops. Some people say, well, he didn't have them give the half shekel." Well, it doesn't tell us that they gave the half shekel, but it doesn't tell us they didn't either. But we do know one thing. Joab is not happy with it. Joab says... You know, don't you understand that all Israel, they're all your servants. Why are you doing this thing to bring guilt on Israel? So whatever David's doing, whatever the sin is that David is committing, and remember, God is angry with Israel, so he's seeking occasion against them. Whatever this sin is, Joab recognizes this is wrong. Well, so the sin probably is not that he's not collecting the half shekel. The sin probably is pride. In other words, he wants a number because he, like Adam, who looked at that tree and there's that nice fruit hanging. His wife saw it and it was so pretty, a delight to the eyes. It was good for food and it was a desirable to make one wise. He, he looked at it and he knew the command and he said, well, hmm, maybe I'll just take it and see what happens. And what he did is he He worked his way from being, well, Adam, the first man ever, but he's climbing his way up to say, hey, I can be equal with God. Or, to put it another way, if I eat, maybe I'll trust God better. That's what David's doing. David is numbering all of Israel's at his disposal. He's done all of these battles and he's been victorious. The enemy may be great and he wants to know, do I have enough people to go out to battle? Or more likely, let me number them so that as I trust God, I will have evidence that I should trust God. Well, he went and numbered them. But he displeased the Lord. Look down in verse 7. And God was displeased with this thing, so he struck Israel. And David said to God, I have sinned greatly in that I have done this thing. But now, please Take away the iniquity of thy servant, for I have acted foolishly. So, David, (laughs) Israel's struck. The word is, you know, we're going to find out it's pestilence. What that pestilence is, we don't know. But struck is a word you use for using a sword. You get struck by a sword, you get smitten, you get stabbed. And so he confesses his sin. This is something David's done before. You remember in chapter 13, David was bringing up the Ark of the Covenant, and he didn't follow the directions of the law out of Exodus, and Uzzah reached out to steady it, and God killed him, and David became angry. And then uh, he thought it through, and then he confessed his sin, and he brought it up rightly. Here, God's not happy with him, and he confesses his sin. Now, notice this sin is it's, it's, it's so big, if you can count sins as big or little, because every sin is rebellion against God. But in this case, it is of such a variety that God kills 70,000 people. Well, I can't remember how many they say the pandemic has killed in the United States. Percentage-wise, Israel had many more killed than we've had killed. I've been a little disappointed in the church at WIDE because I still haven't seen leaders coming out talking about God's judgment. I've seen leaders minimizing what's going on. I've seen leaders assisting on what the church's rights are, but I haven't seen anybody saying, you know, maybe God is punishing us, correcting us. I haven't heard a message like that. At any rate, David confesses his sin. And so God sends Gad And God says, now you you go talk to David and you tell him he's got three choices and he has to choose one of what I will do to him. The first one has to do with famine, three years of famine. The second one has to do with foes, three months of foes with the swords of your enemies. And the last one has to do with fear, Yahweh. And it's three days. Of pestilence, the sword of the Lord. And David said something, of course, that we should all recognize as true. We not, may not always feel that way, but David said, I, I mean, I'm in a big distress here. Let me fall into the hand of Yahweh, but don't let me fall into the hand of my enemies because Yahweh's mercies are great. Then it says down in verse 14 So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel. 70,000 of Israel fell. Now, when David went out to muster, and I should say, Job, and he came back, he came back with a count of those who drew the sword. Now, Yahweh's sword, even pestilence, comes on Israel. And so my guess is you got a question of how many swords does it take to win the battle, but you find out that all your 1.57 million swords are nothing compared to one sword. One sword humbles you, kills 70,000 people. Now, when you think about this, the sword, you have to remember it. This sword shows up in the Bible, and this shows up in Israel's history. And we see the sword first at the garden, guarding the gate so no one can make their way back in. It's a sword that turns in every direction, and it's a sword of fire, Now God has a sword out, and it's a sword of discipline, punishment for sin. And 70,000 men who bear the sword are cut off. They die. How they die, we don't know. The sword also shows up in Numbers chapter 22. When a man named Balaam was going off with Balak, who wanted him to curse Israel. First, Yahweh sent word, don't go. Then Yahweh sent word, go. And on the way, his donkey saw an angel with a stretched out sword. And so he went out of the way and Balaam beat him. Then we got back on path. And then the uh, donkey scraped him off on vines, and scraped his foot and he beat him again because Well, the donkey saw the angel of the Lord with a sword. And then finally, they came into a narrow strait where he couldn't move this way or that, so the donkey just laid down. And Balaam beat him. And the donkey talked to him, one ass to another. And then his eyes were opened, and he saw a stretched out sword it was a sword to kill Balaam because Balaam was going to curse God's people. Now, where were God's people? God's people were on the cusp of crossing the Jordan and going into the promised land. And Moab was worried. There's another sword that comes up, and it comes up in Joshua chapter 5. And Israel has crossed the Jordan. And now all the people who were born in the wilderness in the past 40 years were not circumcised. soon as they crossed the Jordan, they circumcised all the men who have not been circumcised. And then shows the angel of the Lord. Joshua is out and he sees a man with a sword. And he says, are you for us? I'm the captain of Yahweh's host. And Joshua bowed before him and the man said, this is holy ground. Why was it holy ground? It was holy ground because it was the entrance into the promised land. That's why it was holy ground. Now, what we're going to see in this chapter is we're talking about going to Jerusalem and on Mount Moriah, setting up an altar and building this temple. And a focus is going to be on the altar. Why? Because at the tabernacle and at the temple, the doorway is the altar of ascension. Your Bibles will translate the, the altar of burnt offering. Well, that's not the word, the word is ascension. Because on this altar, smoke ascends up to God. That's how you go meet with God in the Old Testament. You go up in smoke, you ascend to God. So now here is Israel, and they wanna go out to battle, but David has sinned greatly, and God has killed 70,000 of them with his sword not literally with his sword, it's called pestilence. David knows he's sinned, and he's asked God for forgiveness. And does God forgive? Well, we're going to see, absolutely God forgives. But when we sin, of course, there's always consequences to sin. Sometimes we don't see them, we don't realize them, but there are always consequences to sin. You, You see, you see what happened the, uh, the chief's uh, coach, coach's son, had a little too much to drink. So he won't be at the Super Bowl today because he's still back in Kansas City because he got into a crash, probably his fault from drinking, and a little boy's life is on the line. There's always consequences to sin. The law is don't drink and drive, don't get drunk and drive, and you, you violate the law you may pay a consequence, you'll, you'll regret, regret for a long time to come. Look down at verse 15. And God sent an angel to Jerusalem, and re- notice above when Joab went and numbered, he ended up back in Jerusalem. That's the end point of his numbering, so that's where the huge sin comes to realization. David gets the number. God sent an angel to Jerusalem, to destroy it. But as he was about to destroy it, Yahweh saw and was sorry over the calamity and said to the destroying angel, it is enough. Now relax your hand. And the angel of Yahweh was standing by the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, then David lifted up his eyes and saw the the angel of Yahweh standing between earth and heaven with his drawn sword in his hand stretched out over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders covered with sackcloth, fell on their faces. So here comes this angel, and he's got a sword, and God looks. It, you, you need to notice in this chapter, and really a lot in the Old Testament, you get all kinds of doubling of words. He lifted up his his, saw, uh, his eyes, and he looked and he saw. That's telling you this is important, so... so God is already looking towards mercy, relax your hand. But here's the angel of the Lord, and the angel of the Lord is by the threshing floor of Ornan, but he is between heaven and earth, and the sword is outstretched over Jerusalem. Does that remind you of anything? Of course it does. Abraham is on Mount Moriah, and the wood's been laid, And his son is bound, and the knife is stretched up over his son. And there's a voice that cries out, Abraham, Abraham, here am I. Now I know you fear me, because you did not withhold your son, your only son. Then the angel of the Lord speaks a second time. I've sworn, says the Lord, that because you have obeyed me and I've not withheld your son, your only son, you are blessed. And in you all the families, no, not families, nations of the earth will be blessed. That, that's in the background here. God is ready with an outstretched sword to disappear Jerusalem. David And all of Jerusalem is going to be put under the sword. But he decides he's sorry about it. David sees it. The elders see it. And they're sore afraid. David knows he's sinned. They cover themselves in sackcloth. And they fall on their faces before the Lord. Interesting, isn't it? When's the last time you fell on your face before the Lord? When's the last time your sin got the better of you and your whole body reacted? Now, in our day and age, in the United States, it's just, oh, Lord, I sinned, forgive me. Not David. Sackcloth, which is a sign of death, and on his face. And David said to God, Is it not I, who have commanded to count the people. Now, there's a textual problem here, so I'm gonna read you from this point on, just in this verse, a variant, a possible reading. It might be the right reading. Many people think it is. Sometimes it's hard to tell for sure. Indeed, I, the shepherd, I'm the one who has sinned and done very wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? O oh, Yahweh, my God, please let thy hand be against me and my father's house, but not against thy people, that they should be plagued. In other words... God have mercy. 70,000 have been killed. The arm is outstretched over Jerusalem. And David says, Lord, Yahweh, it was me, the shepherd. Remember, in the covenant, I took you from following the sheep to be the leader over my people. David is now the shepherd of the nation of Israel and that language is very important because we know from the New Testament but the same things are found in the Old Testament that a shepherd lays down his life for the sheep now David is saying I the shepherd I'm the one who caused this I'm the one who sinned but these sheep what have they done So here, take my life and the life of my father's house and let these go. Of course, that's exactly what Jesus said in John 10. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. So David is not only confessing his sin, he is calling for mercy. And God hears his plea. And in verses 18 through
0: 25,
1: we have the story of uh, including now Arnon with his four sons. And David goes to him at the command of Gad. And he says, give to me this site for the full price. Well, it's a threshing floor. And Arnon's been there threshing. And he also looked and saw the angel of the lord with a stretched out hand and his four sons looked and they hid themselves but Arnon comes out and he prostrates himself before david and david gives his request and Arnon says here you take the site you take the threshing floor you take the sl- sledges for for threshing for uh for building an all for for the wood and you take the grain for giving a tribute offering and you take the oxen for a burnt offering and David says no no i'm not going to give a burnt offering that costs me nothing i'm the one who sinned it needs to be mine i need to pay and so he buys the threshing floor for the full price the full price Well, it's astronomical, 600 shekels of gold. This is what David says, and he gives it. Now, the full price appears twice in the Bible, full price. I wonder if you can imagine in your head where the other full price is. Oh, yes, you're right. It's in Genesis chapter 23. This obscure chapter that most of us don't give a lot of thought to And it's a chapter about the death of Sarah and Abraham needing a place to bury her. So he goes to the sons of Heth and he haggles with them. And they just want to give him a burial site. And he says, no, 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 no. I want to pay the full price. And so he buys the cave of Machpelah and he buries Sarah there. He buys it from Ephron. This language is now picked up. Now, what is similar about the two? Abraham has sojourned in the land, and he doesn't own any of it. And the promise of the Abrahamic covenant is God's gonna give him this land. He has none of it. But when his wife dies, he buys a field that has a cave in it where Abram, Abraham and his wife and Isaac and his wife and Jacob and his wife are going to be buried. Sarah's the first dead body planted. What is it? Well, it's, it's the down payment on the land. It's like now the entrance into the land. Now, what David's going to do is he's going to buy this field and he's going to erect an altar. That's what he does. In fact, look down at verse, let's read it. Look down at verse 26. 26. Then David built an altar to Yahweh there and, and he offered ascensions and peace offerings and he called to Yahweh and he answered him with fire from heaven on the altar of ascension and Yahweh commanded the angel and he and he put his sword back into its sheath So in verses 26 and 27, God said, okay, you get this piece of land, and you put up an altar there, and you offer ascensions and peace offerings, and that's what David does. He buys the site, he erects an altar, and he offers ascensions. Now, ascensions means, remember, he's going to lean his hand on the offering and identify with it. This is me. And he's going to slit the throat and the blood's going to come out and it's going to be poured at the base of the altar and painted on the horns. And then the animal's going to be all cut up into pieces and then it's going to be arranged, stacked on this altar. And then it's going to go up in smoke into heaven. A picture of David going up where he communes with God. Of course, the blood is the payment for the sin. It's the blood of an animal. So that David, after shedding blood, the blood of the animal, is cut up, rearranged, that is, he's glorified, and he goes up and smoke before the Lord. It's a, it's a picture. And the peace offerings are what? After the ascension, what do you do? Well, you come and you, you just sit down and you eat with God. God gets his fat, you can't have hot dogs anymore. Fats for God. God gets his fat and you get a portion and the priest gets a portion. I don't know who that would be here. But anyway, he's eating with God. And of course, his, the elders are eating with him. They're all eating with God because God is now, what would you say? You would say God has shalom. God is at peace with them. He's at rest with them. Now his feet are on the footstool, so to speak. Now look, you see fire coming. Now this, of course, goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden where they're holding a sword, the cherubim, with fire. And then we see it when the tabernacle is built and it's dedicated and the priesthood's dedicated and the offerings are put on the bronze altar, the altar of ascension, and God's fire comes out of the tabernacle and consumes it. We see that fire come out again when Nadab and Abihu sin and boom, they're toast. We see this fire again. When Gideon is going to break down the altar to Baal and he's going to put up an altar to the Lord, and he wants God to help him with his faith. And so the angel says, Okay, bring an offering. He puts out an offering, and the angel reaches out and touches it, and it goes up in smoke. We see it again when we come to. When the temple's finally built, the same thing happens. But here it happens for David, which is what? It's God eating his sacrifice. He's satisfied, he's forgiven David. He's spent out his anger in the sacrifice and now it's only gonna be 70,000 that die in the discipline. It's not going to be more. Jerusalem is saved because of this sacrifice. Verse 28, at that time when David saw that Yahweh had answered him on answered him on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, he offered sacrifices there. For the tabernacle of Yahweh, which Moses had made in the wilderness. And the altar of ascension was in the high place at Gibeon at that time. So it's just mentioning he's gonna offer sacrifices here. That altar was a ways away. But David did not go before it to inquire for. God, to acquire of God, for he was terrified by the sword of the angel of Yahweh. Now what does that mean? It means, okay, Gibeon's over here and there's an altar there and he could go and inquire, but over here is Ornan's threshing floor that he's purchased and he's put up an altar and this is where he's going to sacrifice and he's not going to go back over here because he's afraid. Why? Because here at this altar, God licked up his sacrifice by fire. And David knows this is where God is going to answer me. And so when you come to chapter 22, verse 1, then this becomes the house of Yahweh and the altar of ascension for Israel. It, it, it's amazing. So David sins, and it's this, it, it, it is. Such an affront to God that 70,000 people die, and God is threatening Jerusalem. But David's confession, David's obedience in buying the threshing floor and setting up the altar of ascension, and burning the ascension and the peace offerings on the altar, then God is satisfied. Now, that's the story. Now, notice a couple of things. One is God's temple that's going to be built under Solomon, and next week we're going to see why it's built under Solomon. It's a little more uh, complicated than we might first think. God's, God's altar and the temple that's going to be built under Solomon is going to end up on Mount Moriah because that's where this Ornan's threshing floor is, where Abraham was going to offer up his own son, it's gonna be built right there, but it's at a threshing floor, a threshing floor. Now, a threshing floor in the Bible is not just used in the sense of, okay, this is where you thresh the wheat and you're beginning to separate the kernel out from everything else that's what threshing is and then there's winnowing when you throw it up in the air and the chaff is away it's where it's where judgment takes place you separate the sheep from the goats you separate the weed from the chaff you separate the righteous from the unrighteous that is when this altar goes up and this temple goes up and this altar Is going to raise smoke up that's going to go into the temple as you climb think of these temples as actually being levels they're put horizontally but the the types of uh, of metals show you you're climbing from bronze to silver to gold you're you're going up because it's 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 what leads you to heaven you go from the altar And the smoke goes up into the first room. Then the smoke goes up into the second room. And God breathes it in. And he's at rest. It's a threshing floor. When we come to this table, we're coming to a threshing floor. It's a place where judgment takes place when you come meet with God, God evaluates his people. And that's why when you come, you first confess your sin. So that God will show mercy based on the blood of Christ. And so when sin is put away and you sit down at the table in peace, there's no room for gloominess, fear. It's a place of rejoicing because all of that's been taken care of. So when you come to the temple, And right out front, as soon as you're going to walk in, there's there's an altar of ascension. It's the doorway. And it's sitting on a threshing floor. And when you lay your hand on that animal and you slit the throat and the blood is applied to the altar by the priest, your sin is gone so that peace offerings come next and you can sit down with God in joy and happiness. And God is saying, okay, Here's where I want my name. How does David know that? Well, David knows it because God licked it up with fire. Ah, this is where God wants his name. Right here. For what purpose? Well, because God is going to sit enthroned. Where? With his feet right on top of the lid. And this lid is a picture of between heaven and earth. And under the lid is the Ark of the Testimony. And it's a picture of the earth. And God is at rest with his people, Israel, on the earth. As he sits in the temple and they come to the doorway and they present their sacrifices. Our sacrifice has been presented. Each Sunday we come, we have no sacrifice to give in that sense. We come and we ask for forgiveness. And we sit down with the Lord and He talks to us. And then we move on to sit at His table because Jesus Christ has, His blood's been shed. It's the doorway to heaven, it's sprinkled down the cross onto the ground. And then He takes it up into heaven so that we can sit at this table in peace. It's not a place for gloom. It's not a place for sadness. You take care of that up front when we confess our sins. And here we come to sit and we eat with God. That's what David was setting up, a place for Israel to be at rest with God. All the enemies around David have been subdued. Like Adam was supposed to subdue the whole earth, so now the picture is David subdued the whole earth. We know it's gonna fall apart, but we know where that's going. It's going down to the cross. And at the cross, there's one who dies and rises again. And he's in heaven right now, doing what? Putting every enemy under his foot so his feet can rest. There will be rest. Where? In heaven? no. Of course, when you die, you'll go to heaven, you'll be at rest then. But that's not the point. The point is, the rest is going to be on earth. Jesus is going to come back in that big city that's going to rest on the earth, and there will be peace all around this globe. So right now, there's not rest. Maybe rest is growing. Maybe you don't feel like it's growing, but you have to take it by faith. Some of you here think Jesus is coming tomorrow or in a week or any time. That may be true, but you take that by faith. Now, what I'm telling you is, no, that's the wrong way to look at it. You're going to die. You're going to go to heaven. When Jesus comes back, everyone's going to rise, and we're going to be on the earth at rest. Only now it's not going to be a temple that's made out of gold and silver and iron and wood and stone. It's going to be a people temple, a people temple. That people temple is you and me and all God's people that have lived on this earth so far and all God's people that will ultimately live on the earth in the end and what will it be? It will be a company that cannot be numbered. Abraham, go out there and look, see the stars? If you can count them, you can count your descendants. Who are the descendants of Abraham? It's not just physical. It's the people of the promise, you and me. That's what David sinned. He wanted to count them and say, oh, look how strong I am. But God said, no, you can't count them. There are too many. We live in an era where we think, OK, what's going to happen is oh, there are going to be so few who make it into heaven. That's not the Bible's perspective. I know it says that in Matthew. Matthew's written to Jewish people. They have till A.D. 70. There are going to be so few of them who come to Christ. But after that, the door's wide open to the whole world, and when we get to heaven, there are going to be a company much, much larger than the company in hell. Let's stand together and pray. Father, we thank you for what you did in the Old Testament to teach us how you built a temple at a threshing floor and you licked up the offering with the fire to show your pleasure that you are satisfied. And we thank you that we have an altar. The altar is the cross of Christ and you're satisfied with his shed blood. And so now we as people who understand just a little bit about our sin, we, we know we sin and we know you take care of it in Christ, now we can come and rejoice and be glad and spend time at this table in communion with Christ our Savior, in whose name we pray,
0: amen. Amen.